Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Recently, I was shopping in a store in Donegal. As I was paying at the checkout, the cashier asked me if I had any discount vouchers on my phone. I didn't, but she said, show me, just in case. Then she reached back to her handbag, took out her own phone and said, I have a spare voucher, you can have it. And she smiled at me. The store was busy, a queue was forming, but she took the time to help me. I thanked her, gathered up the bag of groceries, and for a moment I just stood there, caught in the echoes of her kindness. I didn't know the cashier, I didn't know if she saw something in me, but I hadn't realised until then just how much I was in need of kindness that day. There is a quote by Charles Glassman that says, Kindness begins with the understanding that we all struggle. I think this is right. There are times of confusion, loneliness, stress or sadness when an act of kindness can bring a calming to the spirit. Sometimes a stranger does a kindness and has no idea how they have made our day feel lighter. Kindness can be something disparate or quiet, like a smile, an offered seat, letting your car out in traffic, or the wave that says, thank you. It can be a gesture that says, I'm here if you need me. Kindness can be the healing space that appears when someone is listening to you, just listening, without judgment or dismissal, while you talk. Kindness can be a compliment given unexpectedly. I was visiting a primary school once to do a poetry workshop, working with children in first class. I was anxious as to how they would react to me. As I moved around the classroom, a young girl looked up at me and said, I think you're very pretty. The joyful shock of her comment caught me. I felt far removed from pretty that day, but her words fell like magical sparkles on me. There is kindness from random strangers. My son and I were in a car park in Derry recently. We were walking towards the ticket machine when we realised that we didn't have sterling on us. A woman was driving past us, And she stopped the car, walked over to us, handed a ticket to me and said, it's paid up until five o'clock. And she drove off as my son and I stood smiling at each other. I carry memories of kindness from my childhood years that helped me through trying times. In those years, after mum had passed away, there were the mothers of friends who made me feel welcome in their homes, who found a place for me at their dinner table, or asked me how I was, and listened to my reply. And I have one very strong memory from a few years ago. I had to make a sudden trip to Dublin from Donegal, up and down on the bus in the one day. Our son had been rushed to a hospital in Dublin City. By the time I was able to get there, he had been on a trolley in A&E for over 24 hours. His wife was there with him. We took turns standing by his trolley, or sitting on the one chair, all day, as we waited for the medical news. So many people have gone through this experience and know 
how stressful it can be. Eventually, I had to leave them in A&E to catch the express bus home. I landed to the bus stop to get into town. I was anxious and exhausted. When I climbed onto a bus, I reached into my bag and handed the driver a five-euro note. He couldn't accept it, as they took only coins. I was near that final breaking moment. I turned to leave the bus, but the driver said, Wait a minute. And he called out, Can anyone help this woman? There was a queue behind me, so I stood aside and started rooting through my bag, searching for random coins. A young man was boarding after me. He paid for his ticket, and as he walked past me, he said, It's okay. I've paid for your ticket too. I could feel the tears starting. And as he walked up the aisle, I shouted after him, You're a lifesaver. He was a lifesaver, a guardian angel. His kindness shielded me and gave me the greatest gift I could receive in that moment. He gave me hope. This happened years ago. I'm sure that man has no idea how restorative that gesture was for me. But that's the thing. We never know how our actions can be magical to the receiver. How a kindness can drop like warm blessings upon us. any cars on the road in my day. We could guess the destination of each vehicle that chugged by, often in a fog of smoky fumes. When the vet droned past in his pale blue Anglia, we'd fear that Dan Hart's bore was less than sprightly. The sight of the doctor's Volkswagen meant that someone had taken the dreaded turn. We blessed ourselves when the priest's ponderous black Morris Minor crawled ominously by, the clergyman doleful and solemn at the wheel on his way to a sick call or to a neighbour in a bit of trouble, though the nature of that putative trouble was never specified. Once he met my father on the road and asked for directions to a townland where a couple was getting married. He was on the Letters of Freedom tack that day. The directions were convoluted, involving a few overgrown boreens, so we asked my father to occupy the leatherette front seat and act as guide. My father often spoke afterwards of the humiliation evident in the poor woman of the house when she spotted the priest picking fastidious steps through the squawking hens and scrawny dogs in the mucky yard. She flurried hopelessly around the kitchen, swiping the sheets of newspaper that served as a cloth from the table, potato skins falling miserably onto the cement floor. While the road was almost bereft of cars, it was black with bicycles. 
The schoolgoers peddled by in all weathers in the mornings until the big yellow school buses were provided, relieving generations of the misery of wet coats and the cold trickle of rain down the neck for the day. The factory workers were a procession of long-legged men urging their rallies towards the meat factory, where tangles of decomposing animals rotted in stinking heaps. Sometimes I'd fill a sugar bag or a flour bag with clay and watch from the loft window to see if any of them would dip down to retrieve the bit of unexpected bounty. They'd dip down all right, but it would be to hurl the bait against the park wall. They were too well schooled in the grind of the everyday to expect the road to yield a windfall. The women peddled by around ten, Hessian message bags hanging from the handlebars. I knew the likely return time of the generous ones and hung about the garden in anticipation of a bar of fruit and nut lobbed over the wall on Children's Allowance Day. On Saturday nights after closing time, the bicycles wobbled up our road. I'd lie in bed waiting for the familiar choir of voices. Poor Tom B, a farmed out lad from an institution living in an outhouse, always serenaded with the black velvet band. The song must have brought him a bit of respite and fed his imagination. While this daily procession of bicycles brought us a fair bit of drama, one particular day brought us a whole other experience of the bicycle, as the Ross Talton whizzed past our gate. That year, a lap of the race took the doughty contestants over the hairpin bends of the Knockmeal Down Mountains, through the sumptuous greens of the V Valley and along by Clohine. The whirl of the spokes mesmerised us. My father scanned the blur of speed and colour to see if he could spot Myla Minute Murphy, the hero he'd read about in the Irish press. We hailed the blaze and flurry of the valiant ranks of men in awe of the determination and ruggedness that surged them onwards. Bride Purcell, our neighbour, said that they had great heart as she waved a white handkerchief in the kind of homage I've since witnessed in Fatima when the statue of the Queen of Heaven is carried through the throngs. That day, those sightless were our icons, gallant men, who, head down, tackled the road in the conquering way we longed to do as well. The trimmings of the rosary were predictably elaborate on the night of the Ross Talton when I joined Bride for the prayers, the price I willingly paid for watching her television for the evening. Solemn as a bishop, she intoned a litany for the men who had zipped down our road that afternoon. She entreated heaven to protect the worried mothers, wives and the deliciously named sweethearts who waited in foreign countries for the safe return of the men. We prayed that they'd gust home on the strength of our decades and that none would be disappointed. I added my own prayers in the space bride reserved for private intentions. 
I prayed that the Nellies and Chrissies, who cycled home from town, would continue to lob the chocolate in my direction. I prayed that the poor factory men would forgive me my deception with the flower bags. I asked God to ensure that Tom B. had blankets in the outhouse and that anyone who was cruel to him in the industrial school would die roaring. I prayed too that one day I'd be able to tackle whatever road lay ahead of me with the gusto and courage of those Ross contestants. One sunny morning We'll rise, I know And I'll meet you further on Up the road I first became aware of the poet, as Michael Hartnett was affectionately known from his early years, around the age of 12. I was in the same class in the Courtney National School as his younger brother Gerard, and one day the teacher threw in the remark, aren't you the poet's brother? Having a leaning in that direction myself, I now watched out for the poet, and there he was one evening, sitting at Hock's window at the critical junction between Upper and Lower Maiden Street and gazing down towards the iron footbridge over the River Arra. The sweep of black hair across his forehead, the intense look. This, then, was the poet, close to his lower Maiden Street origins. That image would one day remind me of Lorca, a poet he would go on to translate. The poet was to disappear from us for a while, but then, there on the back page of a Sunday paper around 1975, was our own Michael Hartnett, declaring that he was now going to write in Gaelic, Gaelic, not Irish, mind you, but Gaelic, harking back to a proud literary tradition, as if freeing himself from the state exams in so-called school or civil service Irish, and he was now to become Mihala Hatnede. I moved from MacDonald to MacDonald around the same time. If Muhammad Ali could successfully change his name from Cassius Clay, why couldn't we? But changing your name to the original Gaelic was not as easily achieved. Quite soon, with the help of a bursary, he was back amongst us in Newcastle, our poet. Well, a bit outside the town, in Glendarach, the Glen of the Oak, out near Templeton, where he and Rosemary had secured a little house. The aim would be simple self-sufficiency and developing as an artist in the Gaelic idiom. Of course, instead of the Gaeltic Demersion method, as promoted by the Inti poets of the time, as they were known, Hartnett made his connections with the great poets from the past, he went back rather than west. He delved into the poems of Egan O'Rahila, Padraigin Hakeid, and particularly the proud, unyielding Davio Bruder, 17th century poet from our area. In any case, coming from a proud working class background, his father a big Labour Party man, the family means would not have allowed him the luxury of immersing himself among the people of the Kirkogina Gaeltucht. Mike, as I always knew him, would try to keep that Gaelic poet lineage intact by seeing himself as a successor to the great Gaelic poets of Munster, from his home right here in West Limerick. Hartnett had his pride. While he would have picked up a little Gaelic from school and from his surrounds, particularly from his grandmother Bridget Halpin, he had to struggle to gain fluency and confidence in what he claimed as his heritage. 
so he sought out people who might converse with him as and I was one of the lucky ones. I would ask myself if this was a Don Quixote moment, or was it exceptionally brave? I became convinced it was the latter. This was a genuine love affair with Gaelge, the Gaelic language. One of my favourite poems of his from that time on Winka Drolini. In Mavogilog for though for though Daimshias Ned, Vina Garki Klufa Foster is he a dixcrad. Direct she had a selling a Rishan Mocht. Ormsa for Winked Kluiv, Savonier Fluch. Near Gunname a Gair Crean no Karn Cloch. Ach the Untus Cruen of Rashid, a Bull of Wimocht. Binnen law, er herling kerd a alien omos. Is dog an igna for brodum, na liasuk fos. A necklace of wrens. When I was very young, I found a nest. Its chirping young were fully fledged. They rose and realighted around my neck. Made in the wet meadow a feathered necklet. To them I was not human but a stone or tree. I felt a sharp wonder they could not feel. That was when the craft came, which demands respect. Their talons left on me, scars not healed yet. Let's not forget that there were many who cheerfully waved him farewell as he sailed off from the English-speaking mainland. But he must have disturbed their sense of identity as Irish writers. Do we write solely for an English-speaking audience? Or do we try to pull off the Brian Friel trick in his play translations, where we speak Irish, or Gaelic, through the medium of English? In the years since his death, I have listened to many contributions on his life and legacy. I rarely hear anyone say, Yes, I understand what he did and why he did it. There is a reluctance, I feel, to follow such a lonely, such a rebellious pathway. I can hear the collective sigh of relief when he returns to English in the Inchicor Haiku. My English dam bursts, and out stroll all my bastards. Irish shakes its head. We notice he used Irish there in the last line, not Gaelic. I believe the poet was heralding in a post-colonial examination of our past, and I live in hope that his act of reclaiming a language will inspire future artists to take on the challenge and joy of bilingualism. And while he may be seen to have compromised to some extent, he went on to do some very fine translations of the Gaelic poets, providing us with a gateway into a distant twilight. The poet will be there, on the Iron Bridge, waiting for us. People thought we were a bunch of weirdos. Among those people was a local convent girl called Sinead, whose house I used to walk past on a weekly, if not daily basis, to visit a friend who lived on our road. With my long hair, denim jacket, with a shag of our patch on one arm and a CND patch on the other, a cloud of smoke wafting in my wake, I not only fitted the stereotype of a New Park student, for a year or two I probably was the stereotype. 
I started going to New Park Comprehensive in Blackrock County, Dublin in September 1980. As with many people, my teenage years were far from the best of my life. Family challenges, acne, insecurity are not things I like to dwell on. New Park, which marks its 50th birthday this year, was one of a new generation of free secondary schools. But there are a number of things that made it stand out or gave us that alternative weirdo reputation. For starters, New Park, nestled in the middle of a well-heeled suburb full of some of Ireland's most expensive schools, was only one of three non-fee-paying schools established for Protestants in the entire country, the others being Mount Temple in Clontarf and Ashton in Cork. It was a comprehensive, which offers students technical subjects, woodwork and metalwork, as well as academic ones. It was co-educational, mixing boys and girls, then a distinct rarity. There was no school uniform. Though it prioritised applications from Protestants, it was run on a clear non-denominational basis. The places reserved for Catholics were so popular that in no time there was a 10-year waiting list. Added to this was an ancestry that separated New Park from other schools. It was formed out of the amalgamation of two Protestant schools, Avoca, founded in 1891 in Black Rock, and Kingstown Grammar School, founded in Dunleary in 1894. These merged in 1968 and then, in 1972, became New Park Comprehensive. Avoca had a history of pedagogic innovation. It had one of the country's first parent-teachers associations, taught gardening and sex education, and in 1971 was central to the founding of the Irish Association for Curriculum Development. New Park continued this tradition. Ads for the new school's teachers specifically sought candidates willing to participate in programmes of experiment and innovation, hardly the catch cry of other schools at the time. Some people looking in from the outside thought New Park to be some free-thinking commune with no focus on exams. I don't remember it that way. Though I do know the school saw leaving cert points as just one aspect of our education, which I don't think was a bad thing. And we were often given a level of personal responsibility not afforded at other schools. A driving force behind New Park's establishment was Michael Classen, the warm-hearted former principal of Avoca in Kingstown. As New Park principal, he famously told a mid-1980s school assembly that instead of cursing at someone, students should say, you silly goose, and that he thought Doc Martin boots were eminently sensible shoes. But the lasting tribute to Classen is New Park's very existence. It was built on his own land. He could have cashed in on the huge demand for suburban housing, but instead sold the land to the Department of Education for my secondary school. Shortly after it was established, New Park introduced a new year, inserted between the junior and senior cycles, when a child could, as it was said, jump off the academic treadmill and stand and stare. In transition year, or TY, as it's now better known, I had a part in the school play, went on work placements, had my first kiss with the lovely Michelle Austin during a school trip to Glen Cree Reconciliation Centre, and did more than my fair share of standing and staring. Although not officially linked, the parents and staff of New Park were central to the founding in 1978 of the nearby Dawkey School Project, the country's first non-denominational primary school. This 
was the pioneer of what is now the extensive national network of Educate Together schools. Few schools can have had such a profound impact on the modern Irish education system as Newpark. Despite the friends I met while I was there, I can't say my Newpark years were the best of my life. But looking back, I realised that never once did I feel that I didn't belong there. Talking to people over the course of my life, I realised that was not something felt by many people growing up. For that, I'm grateful. Apart from inspiring teachers such as Alan Monnelly, who wrote in my second year school report that Tim's word is his bond, Claire Corcoran, Eileen O'Duffy and my history teacher and mentor James Ryan, who once told me that while I might not be the best writer, I was someone who had something to say, I think there was something about Newpark's ethos of tolerance and encouragement that has brought me to the most interesting parts of my career. And, possibly most importantly, it also gave this weirdo from Newpark the open-mindedness to ask a girl from the local convent school to marry him. When Maeve Binchy and I first talked about getting a cat, most of our friends were enthusiastic. One said, Cats are no trouble. If you go away for a few days, you only need a neighbour to look in, feed them, and ask, How was your day? We went ahead and never regretted it. Our current resident is Audrey, a fluffy white cat with a black tail she sometimes stares at, wondering if it belongs to her. As Audrey sat beside me on the desk one day, I was reminded of one of Maeve's favourite poems, the one about Panga Bourne, the pet cat of a monk who many centuries ago paused in a work of translation to write a verse in the margin of his text about Panga. So I decided to make a verse tribute to Audrey, and here it is, Panga Bourne and Audrey. Pen in hand a monk sat bored. This translation had him floored. There on the desk beside him sat, silky and white, Panga, his cat, ready to purr at every stroke, ready to share a monkish joke, ready to soothe the monk when vexed by tedious tangles in his text. Panga, my dear, the cleric said, I'll write of you and me instead. So in the margin, then and there, he wrote about that happy pair. How Panga dreamed of mice to catch, and he of making meanings match. Each closeted within his mind, monk and cat contentment find. Twelve centuries have passed since then, and here sit I with cat and pen. You sit there, Audrey, sleek and white, pondering perhaps what I should write. Would you exult if I described the story of your feline tribe, how once Egyptian pharaohs kneeled to pray your secrets be revealed? Back then your ancestors with pride were like their masters mummified.
I know for sure you wouldn't revel in tales that claim that you are the devil. Some saints who thought you Satan's daughter kept drenching you with holy water. You'd rather hear the Hindu creed that you are the goddess Shasti's steed. Or learn how once when he was down you brought Dick Whittington to town. Oh, how I wish that you could read and understand my rhyming screed. I yearn that I could learn instead what thoughts are floating through your head. Perhaps, as some believers state, reincarnation is our fate. Then we could both achieve our goals by simply swapping over souls. Then each one would the other be. I would be you, and you'd be me. But here's the snag. Would memory's store recall what we were like before? If not, then better tis by far to stay exactly as we are, I as a man and you as cat, knowing precisely what we're at. Audrey hears not these musings deep, for now I see she's fast asleep. On this morning's programme, we heard Gifts of Kindness by Denise Blake. Tackling the Road was by Margaret Galvin. Hartnett Back by the Ara by Mike McDonnell. Fifty Years of New Park Comprehensive was by Tim Carey. And Pangor Bawn and Audrey, a poem by Gordon Snell. The music was Spiegel am Spiegel by Arvo Pert, played by Nicola Benedetti. Further On Up the Road was by Johnny Cash. A Necklace of Wrens by The Gloaming and Road to Nowhere was by Talking Heads. Gordon Snell's poem marks the Echoes Festival celebrating Maeve Binchy and Irish writers, which has been running over this weekend at Dawkey Castle and Heritage Centre in Dublin. For details of other events, see dawkeycastle.com. Michael Hartnett's collected poems are published by Gallery Press and this year's Eggsha Michael Hartnett Literary and Arts Festival takes place in Newcastle West in County Limerick from this Thursday the 6th to Sunday the 9th of October and there's more on that at Eggsha, E-I-G-S-E, michaelhartnett.ie. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. And you can listen back to the programme at rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.